Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. So we have a very special guest today on Ed's Up. We are pleased to welcome Dan Habib. He's a documentary uh, filmmaker and also he's project director of the New Hampshire Institute on Disability. Welcome to Ed's Up, Dan. Oh, thanks so much, Melody. It's great to be with you today. Just delighted to have you. Um, I've been a big fan of Dan's work for a long time. He's got a number of films under his belt now, uh, the first including Samuel. Uh, I use a number of your films in my classes, excerpts from them. I think they are great teaching tools uh, for in, in university classes that I teach, including Samuel, Who Cares About Kelsey, Mr. Connolly Has ALS, and now he has a new film out uh, entitled Intelligent Lives. So uh, we're just so happy to have you here today, Dan. And, uh, you know, since we are the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning, we're always interested in people's childhoods and how they came to be the people that they are today. So how did you just get into being a filmmaker? Wow. Well, you're sending me back a few years. I, think <laughs> I appreciate it. And listen, I appreciate you using the films in your work. That's, that's why I make movies, to get people like you to put them to work. So mm-hmm. thank you so much. Um, you know, I, I, there is, I think, a direct line to my upbringing because my parents were both very socially active, social justice-minded people. They still are. They're still alive and, and doing great. Um, my mom was a social worker. My dad was a college professor. They both retired from that, those professions. But they, from a very early on, they instilled in me this idea that we have an opportunity to, to do good in the world and, and through our work. And they never were overly prescriptive as to how, our, you know, how each of their three kids navigated the world of their professions or education. They gave us a lot of leeway to pursue our passions, and I think that allowed me to pursue photography from a very early age. I was the family vacation photographer (laughs) from probably 9 and 10 years old on, so I I developed a passion for photography when I was quite young. And then, you know, as I got uh, towards college age, I got very interested in journalism. So I worked for my college newspaper at the University of Michigan and got into covering some, you know, interesting stories on campus. And I was a photojournalist for 20 years, so that was my first profession, was, was telling other people's stories around documentaries, whether they related to things like welfare reform or, you know, I, I certainly did some stories around disability and special education, but mostly it was around covering the New Hampshire primary, which is a big deal here in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. you may know. Um, and it really wasn't until um, we had Samuel and, and our whole world shifted in very dramatic ways that I got into filmmaking. You know, that's such a, uh, a really good point that you made there about when you grow up, um, you know, being civic-minded and socially conscious that, you know, children then just, and encourage them to, you know, do well by your fellow man and to be kind and those kind of, those kind of values, you know, really are instilled young and then give the children the freedom to be able to pursue life in the way they, they see fit. So that's a great, yeah, it's, great it's lesson. Yeah, true. I mean, when I was, I, I'm sorry, when I was, um, when I was young, I remember doing a photo essay early on, 15, 16 years old, and it was about kind of the increasing gentrification in my local a local city, New Brunswick, New Jersey, near where I grew up. And, you know, for some people saw that as a really good thing, but it was driving a lot of people who were low income out of the city, and that was difficult for a lot of people. And I remember doing a photo essay and just thinking, boy, if you can just increase joy and decrease pain, mm. you're doing something in society. And that's been kind of my guiding philosophy. It's a very simple 
but I think um, effective philosophy, you know, increase joy and decrease pain. You do those two things in whatever you do, I think you're moving in the right direction. What a great and simple lesson. So your first film was Including Samuel. So why did you decide to make that film? You know, I really just kind of fell into the melody. It was one of these things that I just felt like I had to do, and I didn't quite know why. <laughs> but, you know, those of your listeners who don't know Samuel, he's a very, he's now an engaging young man of 19, but at the time he was a, a two-year-old, very engaging and adorable boy with an incredibly vibrant mm-hmm. personality and laugh and curiosity and just an incredible, incredible child that we were parenting in addition to our, our five-year-old at the time, Isaiah, who's now 22. Um, and Samuel, in addition to having all those incredible qualities, also had some very serious challenges. He was diagnosed with a you know, genetic disorder early on. We learned at about the age of one that he had cerebral palsy. So he wasn't hitting all those milestones you know, that you expect your kids to hit. You know, they weren't, he wasn't rolling over or sitting up or really talking, even at a year old, uh, let alone weight-bearing or trying to stand. So uh, it, was, it was a very challenging time for my wife and I. It was a very scary time because we had no idea. He had a, a natural birth. It was a very normal, typical birth. Everything seemed fine, and he just started, you know, really failure to thrive after a few months. So we went through what a lot of families go through at that point of tests and you seeing all these specialists and having pieces of Samuel, his blood work and his skin samples mm. sent to labs all over the world trying to diagnose what was happening. That was a time where we were searching for, for a way to be other than just frightened all the time and, and feeling this underlying sense of uncertainty. Thankfully, my wife learned about partners in policymaking. We call it the Leadership Series here in New Hampshire. And I would call it like a disability rights boot camp for families. (laughs) And she went through it when Sam was two. I went through it when he was three. She said, Dan, you have to do this. We have to be on the same page around parenting. And the biggest feeling that came out of that is that we wanted Samuel to feel like he belonged. We just wanted him to feel like he belonged in all aspects of life, our family, our community, and certainly our local neighborhood school. You know, we couldn't imagine him feeling like he belonged unless he belonged in his own school. So it was about that time that I started documenting Samuel's life in pictures. And I was still a full-time newspaper man. I was, <laughs> I was a photo editor at the local newspaper. But on the side, uh, early mornings, late nights, some time off, I started documenting Samuel's life in school and community. And then I started finding other people who were living lives um, of disability and inclusion or, or exclusion and trying to tell their stories. And after about three or four years, I ended up coming together and, and making the film, including Samuel. And I, I just thought maybe it would have some impact in New Hampshire, but it, it kind of took off, you know, just by word of mouth. Absolutely. I translated 17 languages. It's used all over the world now as a tool for um, disability rights and inclusive education. And, and that really set me on this whole new path. I changed jobs, joined the Institute on Disability at the University of New Hampshire. And now for the last 12 years, I've just been making films full time. Well, including Samuel is such a beautiful film, first of all, and then, but it's so personal because of the way that you and your wife Betsy um, talk about, you know, your fears, and which I think have to be the experiences that many parents of children uh, with disabilities feel the same. That you know, went through the same, but maybe don't vocalize them or are afraid to speak them out loud. Uh, just like you know, uh, I know in the film, you said, you know, I had to really, you know, caused me to face my own thoughts about disability and and your wife right. said you know i things that i the dreams that i had for my child now i, I was the, all that was called into question of you know envisioning him as a teenager talking on the phone when he has trouble talking or running around the baseball bases when he can't run and you know just right. 
forcing you to come to terms with, you know, the way you had seen your child's life maybe play out in your mind, um, and then that there's a different reality. So I think that has to be very, um, I think, cathartic or very helpful to a lot of parents who are just beginning their own journey with, uh, with disability and their child. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I, for us, for our experience parenting Samuel and especially doing that leadership series um, and doing the film and, and, and meeting a lot of people with disabilities really changed my whole perspective on disability. And I think that's where it all begins is a, a, a major shift in the way you perceive disability. And I remember very clearly one of the people that we got to meet during the leadership series was Norman Kuntz. You may be familiar mm-hmm, with Norman. Yes. His work, mm-hmm. uh, fantastic disability rights advocate. Amazing advocate, yes. Yeah, and, and he came and spoke with our group in leadership, and he said, he's also a man with cerebral palsy, like Samuel, mm-hmm. and he said, listen, if you gave me a pill to take away my cerebral palsy, I wouldn't take it. You know, I like who I am. I like the work I do. I, lo- I don't want to change myself. And, you know, you might ask a, a person who is black or African-American or someone who is mm-hmm. gay, you know, would you take this, 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 obviously in our society has certain realities that maybe makes those identities more difficult in many ways. But it doesn't mean you want to give up your identity. Right. <laughs> it is your identity, you know. Mm-hmm. And so to come to terms with Samuel, this is part of his identity. And, and as he's gotten older, it's a part of his identity he's very proud about. That was a real mind shift for me to talk to Norman. And then I got to speak with Bob Williams, who you may also know. Yes, I do. Worked the federal mm-hmm. government for many mm-hmm. years. And Bob said, I asked Bob when Samuel was very young, what, what advice can you give me as a parent? And Bob, as you know, is a great leader in government. Yes. And, you know, top-level administrator who, who also, also uses a communication device a like, communication like Samuel device, does. Exactly. Mm-hmm. He likes Samuel, and he said, you know, just give him choices at every juncture. Just always give him choices. And what Bob was communicating in, in a beautiful way was allow him to determine his own life, mm-hmm. allow him to develop self-determination skills. So meeting people like Bob and Norman and many others, Judy Human has also been a big influence yes. on us, um, has helped us reframe our whole perspective on disability, which I think has given... Samuel a sense that he belongs in a sense of he he has a right to all aspects of society just like anybody else. Yes. And then in Who Cares About Kelsey, as I mentioned, I use that in my classes because um, some have a certain view of what they think schools should be uh, that is, you know, a lot of zero tolerance policies now that we know are negatively impacting students with disabilities. And so, right. I, you know, take them through certain segments of the film and have before they kind of know the outcome. Talk, should, is that how did the school do in terms of reacting to Kelsey's behavior? And, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, they were too lenient or they were too tolerant. They shouldn't, you know, put up with that kind of behavior from a student. But then we go through analyzing why it was important that the school handled things the way they did for Kelsey that turned out to be a positive outcome. This is a, a young woman who had um, you know, very significant yeah. behavior issues because of a traumatic childhood. Right. And, exactly. uh, but things turned, uh, fortunately, the school and the community did some things for her that made her life very different and turned out very positively. Exactly. Yeah, and, and for those people who haven't seen the film, it's a student who talks very openly about not only this diagnosis, if you want to call it that, of ADHD and a lot of anxiety, but also PTSD mm-hmm. from being sexually abused as a child. That's very, she's very open about that in the film, as well as being around a lot of drugs and violence and having a very difficult relationship. And so a lot of schools, when they see a student like Kelsey who comes in and might drop the F-bomb here mm-hmm. and there and might yep. you know, show some very difficult behavior would just punish the behavior, yes. and, and she would be suspended repeatedly. She might be expelled. You know, she would be seen as the bad kid. 
I found a school that I really found the school before I found Kelsey, a, a public high school in New Hampshire, Summersworth High School, that had very successfully and thoughtfully implemented positive behavioral yes. interventions that supports PBIS, and also a person-centered planning approach called Renew that allowed Kelsey to identify her dreams, her hopes, her goals, and have a team of people that she had assembled to help her think about how to achieve those goals, including graduation when she had basically no credits after two years, having failed just about every class. But they were able to work with her to come up with a, a very logical path towards graduation to help her identify her dreams and goals in a way she'd never had the opportunity to do. And then she was in this overall school culture and climate that was positive and you know reinforced positive behavior rather than punishing negative behavior. That's right. Right And, and I mean, there is a whole movement that we, and it's very effective, positive behavior interventions and supports. Um, You know, it's about preventing bad behavior uh, and it's effective. It's in uh, 18 to probably more than 20,000 schools across the nation now. Uh, And it's, it's been around, it's, it's proven. uh, It is a strategy that absolutely works, but it works best at the school level. Uh, I worked for a number of years with Dr. Marilyn Friend, and she had a saying that was the the uh, smallest meaningful unit of inclusion is a school. You can't do inclusion or have an inclusion class or an inclusion program because that's not inclusive. You know, in- inclusion is a right. culture. It's not a program or a classroom. It's it's a, a culture, and the same is true. PBIS is a part of that, uh, an effective strategy for creating an inclusive culture. So exactly. let's. And that's how I, do, I was just going to say that's how I do a lot of my film work. Is I first come up with what are the evidence-based practices that I want to capture. And in the case of the Kelsey film, a lot of people were telling me, as I showed, including Samuel around the country, yeah, but what about those kids with hidden disabilities? Mm. You know, with emotional behavioral disabilities, can they really be included as successfully as Samuel, who has a physical disability? And that got me on this exploration, and that led me to people like George Sugai or Rob Horner or Joanne Malloy, mm-hmm. my colleague, you know, people who were able to really educate me on what are the evidence-based practices that can help students with these hidden disabilities be successful. So I usually start with that and then find the setting and the people to film. But every film I do, if, if you, like you do, if you understand what's behind it, you'll see the evidence-based practices right there in the film. But yes. I try and do it in a way that's engaging and fun and funny and good music and, yes. and make the films also enjoyable to watch. That's important to me. Yes. So now here we are at Intel. Well, then you made uh, Mr. Connolly has ALS, uh, a, right. a much beloved uh, school principal who uh, had Lou, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, you know, a, a fatal illness. Oh, and it's about his yeah. you know, journey and the, the community. And, and uh, so you, do you want to talk about Mr. Connolly sure. has ALS for a second? Yeah, I mean, just briefly, that was a very personal story in the sense that one day I was at, I was supporting Samuel at the homecoming parade his sophomore year in high school and you know helping him participate and Mr. Connolly his principal came over and started talking with Samuel and it was this incredibly powerful moment because here was Samuel and his principal speaking and neither one of them could speak at that moment using mm. their words using their verbal uh, language they were, they were both using communication devices because Mr. Connolly at that point had lost his ability to speak due to ALS and uh, I said, wow, there's a really powerful story here. And I decided to spend, you know, about six months while I was also doing Intelligent Lives to document his story and, and the way that he created this incredibly inclusive and supportive school environment for all kids of all differences, whether it's disability or English, English language learners or kids of different gender, gender identities. And, um, and then suddenly he became disabled after 12 years of leading the school and 
suddenly he needed that inclusive environment to feel like he really belonged Mm -hmm. and that he could lead the school as he lost his voice, as he lost his ability to walk. So it's interesting, that film, which which people can watch for free um, on YouTube and just going to our website, Mr. Connolly has ALS, the whole film is right there for free. It's been one of the most powerful and emotional films I've ever done, and it almost surprised me how much it's affecting people, because I think a lot of people who don't have disabilities can suddenly say, oh, okay, mm-hmm. even though I wasn't born with a disability, this could be me at any moment, you know, and that's the reality, and it, it hits people very hard. A lot of school administrators have told me that they've never seen a film that has made them believe more in inclusive education as much as this film. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I start each semester uh, with my students talking about, if you if you don't currently have anyone in your immediate family with a disability, you will have. You know, either right. by, right. you know, because dis- people think, oh, you're either born with a disability or not. But no, disability occurs in so many different ways, through disease, through right. accidents, right. through age, aging. And, you know, disability affects every family. And uh, right. that's the reason I, I talk so much about inclusion, too, is what are we, this is the future we're creating also for ourselves, uh, you know, what right. is the, the color, what kind of a, a culture, what kind of a welcoming uh, community are we creating? Because we are part of that. And one day we are going to be experiencing, if we live long enough, we are also going to be experiencing disability. Exactly. And, and I think that's a very persuasive case to make to people. And I think the other case I try and make is why inclusion is so powerful and beneficial for people without disabilities in schools, especially students without mm, disabilities. Yes, and the that research backs that up. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly, exactly. And I did a whole TEDx talk called Disabling Segregation just about that, about what are the benefits to inclusion to students without disabilities. Because I think if we if we get our largest society to understand the overall benefits, they're going to be much more inclined to, to move in this direction. Because as you, as you know, well, it's not necessarily the easiest path. It's, it's I think the path of least resistance is, is segregation. Yes. It's just keeping the yes. disabilities separated and not worrying about them. But if, if it's, so if it's going to take some effort, why do we need to do it? Why do we need to work so hard? And that's been kind of the crux of my work is to show people why this is the only direction we can go in. Yeah, not long after I started working uh, in Washington as director of the Office of Special Education Programs, some administrators from some nearby schools uh, in Virginia came and, and talked to me. And they told me the story of how their local superintendent had decided it just kind of made the decision without any town hall meetings or anything like that, that they were going to a you know full inclusion model where all kids with disabilities would be in general education. And some of these, these were general education teachers and, and a principal. And she said, you know, I was very much against it. I just, you know, thought that there was no way that we could meet these kids' needs, that they were going to take time away from kids without disabilities and that we, you know, our test scores would fall and all these bad things right. would happen. And she said, it just, it didn't work that way, she said, and now I realize that if we're trying to create, if we're trying to build children who can grow up to function in a global society and and appreciate people in, from diverse backgrounds, this is the way you do it, is in classrooms where they are, you know, we're teaching not just tolerance, but teaching appreciation for what children right. with disabilities, or what all people can bring to the table, and and trying to find a strengths-based approach to working with children instead of looking at what can they not do well. Let's figure out what strengths that everybody has strengths, and let's figure out what they are and how do we capitalize those in in a classroom. Exactly, and I think that's a really positive approach to this discussion. I think people need to hear those positive approaches. I mean, I. 
I, I'd like to quote a study by Eric Carter, who's a researcher at Vanderbilt, who looked at groups of students who were studying for the same material, the same test. And in one group, it was students with and without disabilities working together, collaborating. The other group was students just without disabilities. So a very, one was a very heterogeneous, kind of mixed group. The other was a very homogenous group, just kids without disabilities. Turned out, the kids without disabilities who were studying in that mixed, heterogeneous group, they were achieving higher on their test scores. They were doing better when they were working alongside students with disabilities. And he found it was because they were more engaged in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. They were basically explaining the material in lots of different ways and talking about it from different angles. They were basically differentiating their instruction. (laughs) They were basically Mm -hmm. using universal design for learning within these groups. They were more engaged. And when students are more engaged, when they care more about the material, when they're working together with their peers, all those things lead to better knowledge of the curriculum, and then you're going to do better on test scores. And in fact, I've never seen a a study anywhere that has showed diminished academic outcomes for students without disabilities who are learning in inclusive settings. I've never seen a study Well, but Because what we know is that when kids with disabilities are getting what they need in a classroom, all kids do better. Because there are other children who need multiple ways to show what they know and can do. And uh, so when you're differentiating instruction, using universal design for learning, then all children do better. It's very Mm -hmm. powerful. Yep, exactly. exactly. So, so let's talk about Intelligent Lives. So t- sure, talk about the sure. film a little bit and, and why you chose to make this particular film. Sure. Well, you know, one film just seems to lead to another. <laughs> and so when I finished Cares About Kelsey, you know, I had, I had told my own story with Samuel and, and other people who were in that film, our, our family story. I had told the story not just through the Kelsey film, but through a series of 11 um, short films I did that were companions to the Kelsey film, which are all on our Who Cares About Kelsey website uh, for people to watch for free. Um, so that film project had really focused on students with, uh, I would call, emotional and behavioral disabilities. There was one group that I hadn't really tackled in an in-depth way, and that is students with intellectual disability. Well, it turns out that students and adults with intellectual disability, I would say, bar none, are the most segregated group mm-hmm. of any Americans, really. If you look at the stats, only 17% of students with intellectual disability are included nationally. Yes. And as you know, inclusion to us means you're in the classroom, in the general ed environment, at least 80% of your time. Um, their graduation rate is maybe 40% with a regular high school diploma by the age of 21. And not surprisingly, the employment rate is only at about 15% yeah. for people with intellectual disabilities in, in real in competitive integrated employment. So those are awful outcomes, I right. think we could all agree. So I thought about well, how do I take on this topic and how do I show that there's a different way? And, I, you know, after talking to a lot of people, Mike Waymeyer was a big influence on this project. Mm-hmm. He was a researcher in Kansas, um, or a professor. He and I talked a lot, and I did with my colleagues, about the way our society perceives intelligence as being a tremendous barrier to people with intellectual disabilities and really disabilities in general. But I think people with intellectual disabilities are automatically seen by their very definition, is having a low intelligence, which means you have low expectations, which means you don't necessarily have access to the same societal institutions as people who don't have intellectual disability, whether that's school, relationships, employment, independent living. So what I wanted to do in Intelligent Lives was both highlight some people that were having great success, people with intellectual disabilities, being included in high school, in higher education, and in employment, And I also wanted to look more closely at this whole notion of how do we define intelligence? How do we measure intelligence? You know, you ask 10 people on the street, how do you measure intelligence? Probably nine of them would say the IQ test. Mm -hmm. Do people really know that the IQ test 
was started for a very different reason. Right. To identify students who needed extra assistance. Do they know that the IQ test led to the mass institutionalization of hundreds of thousands of people and the forced sterilization of over 60,000 people in this country? Yes. And most people don't know that history. So the film Intelligent Lives uh, has a great uh, actor and narrator, Chris Cooper, an Academy Award winning actor who's um, a dear friend, narrates this historical piece of IQ testing and history of institutionalization and, and how that changed through family advocacy and self-advocacy and civil rights movements. And that's woven around the stories of three young adults with intellectual disability, Micah, Nair, and Naomi, who are navigating, in Micah's case, college at Syracuse University, in Nair's case, public high school in Boston, and in Naomi's class uh, case, a transition into competitive integrated employment after spending years in a high school that was basically a sheltered workshop. So that's the film Intelligent Lies. But there's also a lot of humor and great music and, uh, and a lot of engaging content in the film. Well, as you mentioned, you know, Academy Award-winning uh, actor Chris Cooper and his wife are in the film. And at the right. very beginning, it's, uh, I think um, he poses this question, can any attempt to measure intelligence predict a person's value or ability to contribute meaningfully to the world? Now, that's, right. a, that's a really poignant question. And then you kind of deliver on that throughout, throughout the film. And you know, could you talk just a little bit about maybe you know, any one or all three of the individuals who are the subjects of the film and how they are challenging um, how we view intelligence. Sure. Well, I often like to start with Micah because he, he's just a great snapshot for the whole premise of the film. And I think what, the quote you read from Chris Cooper is one of my favorites. It's mm-hmm. really the, the premise of the film. And Micah is a young man who is attending classes at Syracuse University as part of this Think College network that you, um, you and many of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with of universities around the country that have access points for people with intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he's attending classes. He's now co-teaching classes. He's got a vibrant circle of friends, you know, doctoral students, graduate students, just great circle of friends. He's got a girlfriend, Megan, uh, with a very full, you know, life and, uh, on her own. And he, Michael also has an IQ of 40. He was given an IQ of 40 when he was about 11 years old. And he knows that because when he went to Syracuse, he needed a piece of paper to say that he was eligible for services. And that mm-hmm. piece of paper was basically the IQ test. So it's just such a, this ironic juxtaposition of here's this man with this very full life who is given this extremely low IQ. And so he, he's a real paradigm shifter. Um, and then and then we follow his life for a few years in the film. I wanted to show that in high school, inclusion doesn't have to stop, that, that students with significant disabilities, including intellectual disabilities, can be successfully included in high school. And I was made aware of um, the Henderson School in Boston because of the yes. Swift work that you're very familiar with, mm-hmm. um, that, uh, that I did five years of filming for Swift, and I was able to film part of that at the Henderson School. They and part of, and, and in Mississippi as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's been a great week to mm-hmm. be filming. Um, and so the Henderson School was one of our early knowledge development sites and for Swift. So I got to know the principal, Patricia Lamprin, and she introduced me to Nair, who's this really wonderful young man, very poised, great artist, uh, very charismatic, also has autism, has a lot of trouble speaking, but expresses himself beautifully through art. And has a great art teacher who's cultivating that and, uh, and is allowing him to have exhibits and really pursue his talents. And then the third subject was really the hardest to find because I wanted to find someone who was transitioning from a sheltered workshop into competitive integrated employment. And I also wanted a woman because I already had two men, you know, that I'd been filming for the project. I wanted someone in New England so I could go back and forth. 
I was hoping to find someone with Down syndrome because that's such an important part of the intellectual disability community. Um, and I like my films to be very diverse ethnically, and so I preferred someone who was non-white. So to find all those people in one person <laughs> was challenging. But I, after many months of research, I found Naomi Montplaisir in Providence, Rhode Island, and, and filmed her as well. So she, uh, her high school was actually cited by the U.S. Department of Justice when they sued Rhode Island mm-hmm. to shut down the sheltered workshops as kind of the worst example of a sheltered workshop in that her high school, instead of having her do math and science and English, was having her assemble jewelry for little or no money, and then that jewelry was being sold off to who knows who. Mm-hmm. It, and that was in her high school. So pretty awful situation, but she's now transitioned into a great job at a beauty school and is extremely happy. So, Dan, what do you hope people take away from the film Intelligent Lives? I think more than anything, it's raising expectations. If, 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 if any of my films um, have the impact on people that they watch it and then they say, wow, I have a whole different set of expectations for somebody with an intellectual disability or an emotional behavioral disability or physical disability, and I, I believe they can work. I believe they can be included in school. I've seen it. I've now yes. seen that in real life in the film. Um, that's my goal. And, and that's why I love making movies is because you take people into other people's lives and their schools and their workplaces and their families, and you give them a really um, in-depth, very intimate, in a way, sense of what those lives are all about. And it shifts people's mindset. You know? And, I, and I, I really believe, unless your hearts and minds truly believe that we need to move our societal institutions into a more inclusive direction, it's just not going to happen. Right. You know, you could have all the professional development and all the training and all the read all the, you know, research papers, but if you don't truly believe with all your hearts and minds that this is the right way to go, you're not going to put the effort into making it happen. So I, I feel like my films, I hope, do both. They give you that hearts and minds motivation, but they also show a vision for what's possible. So if someone wants to see Intelligent Lives, how can they find out more information? Well, the best way uh, is twofold. One is to go to our website, intelligentlives.org, and we're always putting you know, current information there, and we have a trailer and lots of free resources on that page. In terms of kind of our breaking news, we have uh, a Facebook group, that's a Facebook page that's very active, um, that we're always putting not just resources about the film, but resources about the topics that the film addresses. And if you're you know, a Twitter and Instagram person, we have... Um, a Twitter feed, Intelligence Doc, D-O-C, or, um, or my Dan Habib Films Instagram. But really, that, that's the best way is just to follow us on one of our social media platforms, and we're constantly letting people know. We are um, going to be broadcasting the film nationally this October on the program America Reframed on public television. And as long as people you know, subscribe to one of our social media outlets, they'll know exactly when and where they can watch it. That's very exciting. <laughs> yeah, we're excited. I mean, it's already been... A really good ride. We've already shown the film in, in just about every state, and uh, many universities are using it in school districts. But to get to a kind of a public TV mass culture audience is really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us on Ed's Up today. Dan Habib, a documentary filmmaker and uh, project director at the New Hampshire Institute on Disability. Thank you, Dan. Oh, thank you, Melody. I really enjoyed speaking with you. We like to end each podcast with a poem for children because children love poems and rhymes and uh, they love to hear words. So please give your children the gift of poetry. And this is from FamilyFriendPoems.com. Sneasels by A.A. Milner. In my household, we love Winnie the Pooh, and that's the author uh, of Winnie the Pooh is A.A. Milner. One of his poems is entitled Sneasels. 
Christopher Robin had weasels and sneezels. They bundled him into his bed. They gave him what goes with a cold in the nose and some more for a cold in the head. They wondered if weasels could turn into measles, if sneezels would turn into mumps. They examined his chest for a rash and the rest of his body for swellings and lumps. They sent for some doctors in sneezels and weasels to tell them what ought to be done. All sorts and conditions of famous physicians came hurrying around at a run. They all made a note of the state of his throat. They asked if he suffered from thirst. They asked if the sneezels came after the weasels or if the first sneezel came first. They said if you teasel a sneezel or weasel, a measel may easily grow. But humor or pleasel the weasel or sneezel, the measel will certainly go. They expounded the reasons for sneezels and weasels, the manner of measles when new. They said if he freezels in drafts and in breezels, the thesels may even ensue. Christopher Robin got up in the morning. The sneezels had vanished away, and the look in his eye seemed to say to the sky, Now how to amuse them today? That's Sneezels by A.A. Milner from FamilyFriendPoems.com. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at olemiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity. 